0: Before we look at Psalm 45, I want us to think about it um, in this way, is that it is a love song, song or psalm as it were, uh, maybe the greatest love song uh, that's actually placed in there. And so when I went and looked at maybe in the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, some of the greatest love songs that are out there, let me just jog your memory for a second uh, some of you may remember a, a song, and I don't think I've ever quoted Elton John in a sermon before, but you know your song, you know the song that goes, "I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind." I'm going to stop there. Um, or you know maybe it's um, Andy Williams, you know if you go back a little bit further, where it's uh, "You're too good to be true, can't take my eyes off of you. You'd be like heaven to touch. I want to hold you so much." Or if you're more current, you know, some, another love song, uh, uh, Perfect by Ed Sheeran in 2017. Uh, or if I go back to the days of my own uh, growing up and probably college, uh, which dates me, I think about the song um, by Brian Adams, this raspy voice, everything I do, I do it for you. Some of you are now on memory lane thinking about some of these things. Now, all of those songs, all of these love songs uh, are, are, are talking about the other person. Uh, Elton John's, uh, your song, is talking about uh, uh, this love. Andy Williams talking about this, this love. Ed Sharon talking about this love. Now, Brian Adams' song is a little bit different because it actually talks about, you know, I'll do anything. You know, I'll do in terms of self-sacrifice, but unfortunately, it, um, it starts with, well, it just can't help it. There's nothing I want more. Oh, I would fight for you. Yeah, I'd lie for you. That's where it, it goes astray. Uh, I'd walk the wire for you. Yeah, I'd die. I don't even know what that means, walk the wire for you. Uh, they're just looking for rhyming things. So these are incomplete, right? So whether it's, you know, speaking about other, but Psalm 45 is unique because it's not about the bride. It's actually about the bridegroom. So it's interesting that this great love song, uh, the greatest of love songs that we find within the Psalms is not speaking about the bride, it's speaking about the bridegroom. Now there is a place where the the bride is spoken of and really the the Psalm is broken up and and verse one is the introduction. Uh, Verses two through nine follow uh, about the bridegroom. Verses 10 through 15 speak about the bride, but it's not uh, really about her beauty. It's really continuing to speak about the beauty, the immense beauty of the bridegroom compared to the bride. And then there's a conclusion that happens. So again, greatest love song, greatest love psalm. Um, Here here it is, um, Psalm 45. So hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your, hand teach you awesome. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of a Hear, O oh daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty." Since he is your Lord, bowed to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, as we contemplate um, this, this righteous, this truthful, this beautiful king, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, have us to understand that Jesus is better than all. And that, Father, even in the midst of this psalm, Father, you're speaking of Jesus and the bride of Christ. That you're speaking about our hearts leaving behind all that this world has and following Jesus. So, Father, as we, as we read your word, as we delve into your word, Father, I pray, Lord, that the beauty of Jesus would, would just draw us to him, and that we would give ourselves. Father, help me as I proclaim. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help me to have clarity of thought and lucidity of speech. And for those who are listening, Father, I pray, Lord, that they would be active listeners. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would change us by the power of your word, that we might love even more Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Here's where we're going to go today. Um, Again, uh, when we think about this psalm, we're really thinking about the ancient wedding custom. And oftentimes what you would find is that in the ancient world, the the bridegroom would actually be with his people, uh, with his attendants, and he would actually travel to the bride's home or where she was staying at the time. And he would go in full regalia. And as he would go to her home, then they would actually, uh, he would you know, pick her up, you know, and I'm not like on a date or anything, but pick her up, and he would take her, and then they would go back to the palace. They would go back to his home, and that's where they would have this ceremony. And that's what we find ourselves in. And, and many people have thought that this is actually speaking about Solomon and per- perhaps Pharaoh's daughter, because it talks about there's, there's hyperbole, it would seem, in, in verse 2 from the pen of the writer, when it says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Now, even um, literally, you are the most beautiful of the beautiful. That's what literally the Hebrew says there. And so what we find is that this, this um, author of this particular psalm, he's actually, he just can't help but talk about all of the ways that the king is righteous and, and good, and he is what everyone is looking for. Because in the ancient world, um, certainly a wedding was a huge event, but a royal wedding, a royal wedding between a king and a queen, it just gets way more press. I mean, even today we see that, right? Whenever, we don't even have a monarch. Like, we get just enraptured when, we, when people start thinking about, you know, the king and queen over in England. You know, a country that we, we you know, we... We overthrew them, right? I mean, we're not, but we still get really, really excited. People will wake up in the morning, like 2 a.m. to watch a princess and, and and a king or a prince get married. But, it, but in this sense, there's, there's so many different layers in this psalm. Certainly one of the layers is talking about um, a king who is married. And then this king, if you're the people of God and you're sitting underneath the authority of the king, you want a king who is full of righteousness. You want a strong, wise king who will, who will rule with equity. Like that's what you're looking for. So this psalm is speaking about all of those things. So if you're witnessing a royal wedding, you're hoping for a king that will actually fulfill your deepest desires. I mean, we still feel that because we want our leaders to lead us in righteousness and equity and to do what is right. And so every two years, four years, whatever it is, every time we're, we're electing leaders, there's this yearning within our hearts that we would have somebody um, who would lead us in righteousness. And the reality is, we're always let down. And it doesn't matter which future man will lead us, man or woman will lead us politically, we will be let down, okay? It's just it's the way it is. But with Jesus... We are never let down. And, and you know, that, that song that we have already sung, it says, Jesus, he's all that he said he would be. All of these promises that we see right now in, in, in politics, all of these promises, you know, how many of those promises are actually fulfilled? Very few, it seems. But Jesus always keeps his promises. Like he is the good king that we have all been yearning for. Now, how do we know? That this particular psalm is about Jesus. Well, we read about this in the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bibles, turn over to the book of Hebrews. I want to show you this. Uh, we're, we're, We're quoting psalm 45 in the midst of this and this is how we know that this is definitively about the son of god in hebrews chapter one again the writer of hebrews goes into the book of hebrews trying to make a an apologetic case for why jesus is better than all others he's better than angels he's better than the other kings he's better than the priests he's better than the sacrifices and in the midst of hebrews chapter one it says this the writer of hebrews said and says in verse eight but of the son meaning Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what we find is that we are quoting Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7 in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. See, the the New Testament is giving us clues and unraveling the mystery of this great king that we are expecting. Now, sometimes Psalm 45 is actually referred to as the Christmas psalm because they're waiting for a king. They're waiting for a righteous king who would come and rule and reign with equity. So, let's let's jump into this Let's talk about the groom, and I wanna talk about the groom in terms of the beauty that we see. Notice when, when we talk about this, this beautiful, a beautiful of the sons of man, notice how it describes it in verse two. He, there's a beauty with his words. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. In verse two, what we find is that when we think about this good king, or really what we're talking about, when we think about who Jesus is, we think about the, the words that he spoke, In another sense, we think about this, we love to hear you speak and teach, says the poet. We hang on your every word. Your words give us fresh life. They are words in season, just the right words every moment. That's who Jesus is. Because again, no earthly king could live up to that. I mean, even the best of men will actually falter in their words. I mean, I, I know this, Because even like good husbands in the midst of their their marriages will falter and say unkind things. I mean, how many wives have heard their husbands say an unkind word, a rash word, a foolish word, and certainly how many men look back maybe even this morning and go, man, I wish I hadn't said that. Man, I blew that. I could have spoken words of life, but instead I, I... spoke words of anger and frustration and bitterness and selfishness. We see this, but in, t- in terms of this great king who they are looking forward to the advent, we think about Jesus. Even when in two places in the book of John, when all the people were departing the disciples in John chapter 6 after he had fed the, the 5,000, and then Jesus were, were, were giving hard words to the people and when, when the disciples, when he turned to the disciples and said, aren't you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, no, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or in John chapter 7, when, when Jesus is, is the, um, the Pharisees send out the soldiers to actually arrest Jesus in John chapter 7, and the, and the soldiers go, and here's what they say. When the soldiers went to arrest Jesus, they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Every time Jesus speaks, they are words of grace and truth. And what's amazing, and we see this in John chapter 1, that Jesus, full of grace and truth, this is what occurs every moment, every every time, he always says the right thing. Always with the exact measure of grace and with the exact measure of truth. I mean, that's often, when I think about you know, parenting, when I think about leading, I oftentimes, the prayer of my own heart is, Lord, give me the correct measure of grace and truth in this situation, because I need that. Because my tendency is to be too hard when I need to be full of grace, or maybe too loving or too gracious, and not, and not telling the truth, the hard truth, when it needs to be said. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I mean... That's hard. But Jesus always had the correct measure. He always knew the right recipe. Again, when Jesus was on earth, the words of Jesus had power to still the storm, to send demons from those who were possessed, to restrain enemies and draw men and women who were trapped by sin to faith. And his words continue to have that effect today. Today. Drawing us to him. Now, we see this, the beauty of his words, but we also find this, and this is, a, this is interesting because we see the beauty of his warfare. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 45. It says, Gird your sword on your thigh. O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So, so this is not a king that actually sits back and allows others to fight his battle. Like, he will actually be the one at the tip of the spear. This is one that we can follow because he is strong and powerful. And notice what it says there's this beauty of the warfare that occurs because it says in verse 4 In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. There's this idea here where this, this idea of truth and meekness and righteousness. This is not about, you know, somebody has, you know, his feelings aren't heard. The, the, the borders or are, are, are resources are not being fought over in the midst of his beauty of his warfare. But rather, when he goes, when we think about him riding out for truth, what Jesus does is Jesus comes and he obliterates and is victorious over the lies of the world. He comes to bring light where there is darkness He comes to redeem and set free those who are captive by the world's philosophies. And he says, no, no, I want to conquer and overcome the falsehood with the truth that I am God and that you need to believe and trust in me. That's what he does. But he not only overcomes lies with truth, but notice it says he also overcomes pride with humility. I mean, that's what Jesus does. I mean, when we think about Philippians two, when he says he does not um, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Meekness, humility. How does he overwhelm the pride? And again, this is what I think about in terms of pride. I mean, many of us look around and we go, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm kind to my wife. I'm kind to my children for the most part. Yeah, you know, I got you know I got a few picadillos, small sins out there." But what Jesus does is Jesus reveals to us that we are sinners and we are called to humble ourselves and to believe and trust in him alone for our salvation. That we don't bring anything to our salvation except the sin that needs to be forgiven. And what Jesus does, and this is the the, the beauty of the sacrifice, and we've been talking about it for the last few weeks in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus shed the glory of heaven came and lived a perfect life and then died a sinner's death so that we might be redeemed. You think about the humility that Jesus put on and the call to humility. And he says, this is how we overcome pride and self-will. We overcome it and we vanquish it through humility. I mean, how many kings are like that? How many kings come out and pronounce and then live a life of humility and meekness. But that's the beauty of his warfare, to not only obliterate the lies, but also to conquer and vanquish pride. But then it also says um, in this, it says that for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. There's this, this idea that as Jesus comes everything that he says, everything that he does will be right. He won't do anything in error and he won't do anything halfway. Everything that Jesus does will be with righteousness and justice. And and we think about that in, in our own world today. And we long for this. We long that our leaders would actually overcome wickedness and unrighteousness at least as it pertains to other people. Because when we think about ourselves and we think about some of the issues that we, we have, I'm here to tell you, if Jesus was ruling and reigning right now, you are going to be somewhat offended by what Jesus tells you about you. Now, I often think about Jesus coming and ruling and reigning so that he can conquer all of the wickedness outside of me, right? Right? But Jesus comes and rules and reigns to actually begin to conquer some of the wickedness and the injustice within our own hearts. And brothers and sisters, don't be mistaken. There is this idea of wickedness and injustice that remains within our hearts. And he will root out all of that. So be careful what you wish for. Because as Jesus were ruling and reigning here in our country, per se, you would be offended by what he wanted you to do or you would be stretched. You would be stretched in your trusting and believing. But everything, everything that Jesus will do will be better. We'll sing this later on, but there's the, this great older hymn called Fairer, Fairest Lord Jesus. When we, when we think about him in, in, in this verse, it says, um, Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer, then all the angels heaven can boast. Now, not only do we see the beauty of his words, not only do we see the beauty of his warfare, but we also see the beauty as he reigns as king. And this is where it's, it's interesting in verses, um, in verse six and seven, what we find is that uh, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The psalmist at this point actually refers to the bridegroom as God. And you're like, okay, what's he doing there? You know, is he just saying that the king is like God? Is this a simile? What's going on? And then in verse 7, it actually says, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Now, if if you're a Jew, early on, you're looking at this going, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. How can this, this bridegroom be called God, but then God anoints God? How does that work itself out? But the answer is, is that this is not speaking about Solomon, and it's certainly not speaking about um, any of the other kings, but it's speaking about Jesus, where, we, where we, we begin to see that God the Son is being anointed by God the Father, and so, and, and again, this is just straight Hebrew here. And so it's it's revealed to us in the midst of his reign. And look at verse six: there's the beauty of Jesus' reign as King. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Now, this, this idea um, of a scepter for a king, is, this, is that the royal owner of this scepter literally um, would, would hold in his hand the key to life and death. His was the last word, and holding the scepter signified that his authority was absolute. The verses below use the word scepter, you know, to talk about, denote his authority. Now, we think about this in terms of, um, say, maybe the book of Esther in the Old Testament, when Esther approached King Xerxes and she knew that she wasn't supposed to go into the king's court without being called, and, but she took a risk of faith and she entered into Xerxes and he held out the scepter to her. And by holding out the scepter, he was granting that he, did not, he was not going to kill her, but rather she had the right to be in and he wanted to hear what she had to say. You see, the scepter was a symbol of authority and power and holding life and death in your hands. And when we read, what Jesus is saying is that this eternal king, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. And again, in verse 7, this is the beauty of Jesus. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I mean, think about all of those things he will his rule will be one of righteousness and love conquering all of his and our enemies and again our hearts long for this type of leadership our hearts long for one who will lead us in righteousness and uprightness he will always hate the wicked and love the righteous Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. It even says, you know, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Afer. Um At this point, um, I mean, this is, are we talking about the, I'm not sure if we're talking about the queen mother in terms of a, a, a real um, a real queen or are we talking about the, prince, the princess who's about to come? But not only do we see the beauty of his words, not only do we see the beauty of his warfare, not only do we see the beauty of his reign and rule eternally, but we also see the beauty of his lavish gifts. I want you to notice that when we talk about the bride in the midst of this section, that everything that she has is actually given to her by another. When you... Um, When you think about, you know, in verse 9, it talks about that the queen stands in gold of fur, meaning that it's been given to her. In verse 13, we see all glorious is the princess in her chamber, and they're not actually talking about her physical beauty, but they're talking about a righteousness or or some sort of external um, thing that was given. Like, for example, with robes interwoven with gold— and in verse 14, in many colored robes she is led to the king. So when they're talking about the beauty, the beauty of the bride, we actually see that the beauty of the bride is coming as a gift from another. Now, we would think that the, the gold of Ophir is sort of the gold that was um, in Solomon's minds, as it were. But this is gold that is given, it's imparted, it's given over as a gracious gift. Now, when we think about this, this generosity, um, I think about the idea of Colossians chapter 3. When we think about um, verse 10, when we put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And there, or in verse 12, when it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. There's this idea that that everything that the bride has that is beautiful has been given to her. Now, here's where we are as we transition from speaking about the bridegroom to the bride. And there's a, a transition that occurs between verses 9 and 10. What we find is also when we think about the bridegroom, we think about um, the church, the body of Christ. Because we think about Jesus being the great bridegroom and his church being the bride of Christ that he loved and gave himself for. Now, there's a warning here. There's two things I want you to see in terms of the bride. Um, Certainly, she is called to put on sort of the gold, as it were, of the king, to put on a a righteousness that is not from her. But notice what it says in verse 10. Here, O daughter, there's almost a, um, maybe not quite a rebuke, but certainly like, you need to listen up, O daughter, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. It's almost Proverbs when Solomon says, hey boy, you need to listen up. I don't know if any of you guys, you know, my, my my wife oftentimes says, Honey, you can't speak to the boys that way. You know, it's like, hey boy, you know, I'll say something like that. And, and I'm like, I'm just trying to get their attention. And she's like, Honey, they're not dogs. I'm like, I know, they're not nearly as obedient as our dogs. <laughs> I'm just trying to get attention. I'm trying to get the boys' attention at this point, right? But in a similar fashion, in verse 10, it's hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Notice what it says, forget your people. In your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Now, what he's saying there is is akin to um, what Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about, that we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Meaning that we are called to, to run to Jesus, to lay aside everything that would hinder us. What, what he's saying here is, and again, if we're talking about, if, if we're thinking about a real king, we're thinking about Solomon and maybe his first bride, which was the daughter of Pharaoh. And what the psalmist is saying is, you need to put aside everything, put aside all the false beliefs and idols of your heart, and you need to run and walk with Jesus. So there's this, this negative connotation, and certainly, I mean, we have that for us today. And I think about that in terms of just for you and for me, what are those things that hinder us? What are those things which are weights around our ankles? What are those things that um, really are the ruts of our family's sins? I mean, we, we see this, right? I mean, oftentimes, you know, mothers and, and, and um, like oftentimes I think about the issues of my own life, and I I see them reflected certainly in in the life of my father. And I see my own sons' and daughters' issues reflected in the way that they were brought up under me. And there's a, a sense in which when we talk about leaving your father and mother, what it's saying is leaving all those things which entangle and are false gods in order that you can give yourself completely and wholly to the Lord Jesus. But that's what we're called to do. But it also, if that's the negative, there's also this positive in Psalm 45 where it says, um, and the king will desire your beauty in verse 11, since he is your Lord, bow to him. The negative is to, is to put off everything that would entangle you. All of the things that um, your people in your father's house would lead you astray, but you are called to bow to him since he is your Lord, bow to him and worship him. Now, again, this is why I think that we're thinking about Jesus here, not just a man, but there's this idea that is clear within this psalm that we are supposed to worship the bridegroom, that we are meant to, with with all of our song, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with all that we have. So the bride... You're the bride, and and really, when I say bride, I'm talking about myself, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about all of us. This is what we're called to do, to lay aside all the weights and things that hinder us, and we're also called to worship well the King of kings and Lord of lords. And notice some of the ramifications for us as the bride. Notice what it says, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts the richest, richest of the people. There's this this aspect that the world will see our devotion and our love, and they will say, we want to know Jesus as well. When people begin to follow Jesus, when people begin to give themselves completely unto him, the world begins to notice, because your love is full of uprightness. And And you love what is right, and you hate what is wrong. And even in the psalm, it says the world will look and go at least some people in the world, not all, will look and go, wow, I want that. We see that, right? I mean, I've seen people come to faith because they see other people who have come to faith and they go, what's different about you? What's happened in your life? And when we can talk about this idea of following Jesus and only in following Jesus do we find forgiveness and love, Then we're able to to share the love of Christ with others. And then the people of Tyre. And again, Tyre in the ancient world was sort of this this wealthy uh, coastal city that had the the treasures of the world. And people will actually leave Tyre and become a part of the king of kings. There's a couple implications. um, I want want us to think about as well when we think about this love song. Um, one of the things that happens if you're a bride, um, or if you've been to any weddings recently, is you'll know that it is an affair, and it is a long, long planning process often, oftentimes. I mean, you, you'll go through months of planning, you know. Premarital counseling, you got to figure out who's going to do the flowers, who's going to do the invitations, who's going to be the photographer, how about the musicians, what about the venue, what about the food, what about the appetizers, what about the de- decisions upon decisions upon decisions. Like, you know this, right? Like, if you've had uh, any children, you've been a part of a, a, a wedding recently, uh, I don't know of any bride that has just said, well, it's my wedding day, I guess I'll just run a comb through my hair and show up. Never seen it. I have not seen it. What happens is the bride will actually wake up. If it's a a 6 p.m. wedding, the bride is getting ready at like 8 a.m. I was talking to my daughters about this. And I'm like, wouldn't it be awesome to have like a 10 a.m. wedding? So that, you know, 10 a.m., we lead into lunch. And they just, I thought they were going to hit me. I really did. They were like, we can't do that, Dad. you know how long it's going to take for us? We'd have to wake up at like midnight or 2 a.m. to begin to get ready so that we could do everything that we needed to do because we're women and you're a man and all you have to do is show up and put a suit on, you know, and just, you know, I mean, you know, your hair is not that big a deal, right? I don't know of any like, like it's, it's not that big a deal, Dad. Like we, we we have it and we think it's important and all those kind of things. And so I just... know when weddings come up I just remain quiet that's just probably the wisest thing for any man to do in the midst of it just show up and get carpal tunnel from writing checks that's all we do you know we just kind of figure those things out but in the midst of this what we see is that from Psalm 45 when we think about the bride I'm asking this question are we preparing ourselves for the great wedding feast of the lamb are we preparing ourselves through the word of God through the worship of God, are we becoming the bride that is, meant to, that, that is meant to be for Jesus? Are we preparing ourselves? Are we pursuing that? And again, all the preparations for a wedding, I mean, it's, it's just incredible, all of the details. All of the details. And yet, oftentimes, I think we spend so much more time preparing ourselves for a wedding for you know, a man-to-man wedding than we are preparing ourselves for what heaven will be like. I mean, I think about this in terms of, you know, Revelation chapter 19, you know, it says um, in verse 3, it says, once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen of the righteous deeds of the saints. I mean, there's this This picture of us preparing ourselves, and that's what we're doing in the midst of our own sanctification. We're we're preparing ourselves for the great wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will be united to Jesus forever. I mean, that's what this love song is about. This it concludes in verses 16 and 17. And, and again, it goes back to the bridegroom. And this is the, the, the last few lines of the psalmist who says, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. And there we go from this, actually, um, this idea of the bridegroom and the bride to the family of God. And what happens when you have a bride and a groom that comes together? They have children. And what we find here is this idea, and this is where the metaphor begins to shift a little bit, is that you and I, when we believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, are made sons and daughters of the Most High King. And so when Jesus comes to redeem a people for himself, he adopts us into his family. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we're adopted into a royal family, and when you're adopted into a royal family, it means that you too are now royal. Princes and princesses of the Most High King. And we will r- rule and reign with him forever and ever. That's the promise of God. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus is everything that he said he would be. He always lives up to his promises. Let me end um, today with this quote from uh, George Whitfield, George Whitfield, the great um, colonial evangelism from or evangelist from. Here's what he says about choosing Jesus. Hereby, you choose rags before robes, dross before gold, pebbles before jewels, guilt before pardon, wounds before healing, defilement before cleansing, deformity before comeliness, trouble before peace slavery before liberty, the service of the devil before the service of Christ. Hereby you choose dishonor before a crown, death before life, hell before heaven, eternal misery and torment before everlasting joy and glory. And need there be any further evidence of your folly and madness in refusing and neglecting Christ to be your spouse? You see, when you reject Jesus, you reject all that is good and worthy. I had a, um, a friend of mine who was an older pastor. He's now retired. His name is uh, William Harrell. He uh, pastored a church for many, many years in Norfolk, Virginia. And, what, um, and this is a little controversial. He just wanted to be a little controversial. And here's what he would say. When a young couple would come into his office, he would ask them the question, uh, you guys want to get married, right? And they were like, yeah, we want to get married. And he would say, are you already married? And they would look at him and go, no we're not already married, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And he would say, well, if you're not married, I can't marry you. And he's like, what? And then he was saying, if you're not married to Jesus, then there is no way that your marriage will work. If you're not already abiding with Christ, joined to to Christ, then there's no way that I can actually do your wedding. You see, When we come to faith in Jesus, we come to one who is um, better and wiser, stronger, and more loving than any other. Now, this table before us um, reminds us of all that Jesus did for us. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And as often as you drink it you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Now, why do we celebrate the death of Jesus? Because it was through the humility of Christ, it was through the death of Jesus that all of our sins are paid, that every sin that you've ever committed has been paid for. And so as you come, as you come forward, know that you are forgiven because of his substitution on your behalf. And I pray that we would think about the beauty of Jesus the beauty of His words, the beauty of His reign, the beauty of His warfare, and the beauty of His lavish gifts upon us. Might we love Him more and more. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we know that this bread will always be bread and this juice will always be juice, but Father, we pray, Lord, that You would show up in a mighty way, Father, that You would spiritually bless Your people, Your church, Your bride, that we would be reminded that only in Christ do we have life eternal. Father, only in Christ do we have purpose and joy. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we come, that we would be reminded of the many, many ways that Jesus has loved us, calling us to himself. Father, he is the perfect high priest, he is the perfect prophet, and he is our righteous king. Prophet, priest, and king, Father, may we understand and adore him more and more. So Father, help us to believe and to love. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.